You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of Yahweh his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel, who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed Rezin. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before Yahweh, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of Yahweh, and put it on the north side of his altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great altar burn the morning burnt offering, and the evening grain offering, and the king's burnt offering, and his grain offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their grain offering, and their drink offering, and throw on it all the blood of the burnt offering, and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Uriah the priest did all this, as King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the frames of the stands, and removed the basin from them, and he took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it, and put it on a stone pedestal, and the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house, and the outer entrance for the king, he caused to go around the house of Yahweh, 
because of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers, and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Hezekiah his son reigned in his place. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 812 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, February 7th, 2024, and I just read 2 Kings chapter 16 for you from the Old Testament here in just a moment. We will read commentary from Matthew Henry regarding this chapter and Then the bulk of our time will be in review of three books that I have read here very recently concerning Europeans and Indigenous Americans and the interactions between the two groups of people, broadly speaking. There's lots of different kinds of Europeans. It's important to remember. And there were a lot of different peoples and cultures here in the Americas. It wasn't just one people group. Don't think of the indigenous Americans or the Europeans as monolithic, but we'll talk about these three books as a little bit of a teaser. Nine Years Among the Indians, 1870 to 1879, the story of the captivity and life of a Texan among the Indians by Herman Lehman. This one, very, very fascinating and a difficult, a difficult story We'll also talk about Conquistadores, a new history of Spanish discovery and conquest by Fernando Cervantes, a rather more recent work published in 2020 by Penguin Audio, copyright Fernando Cervantes, 2020. Lastly, we'll talk about Bartolomé de las Casas, a brief account of the destruction of the Indies, an even older work then nine years among the Indians, actually much more contemporary to the subject matter of Fernando Cervantes' Conquistadores. Not exactly painting in the most flattering light the actions of supposedly Christian Spaniards in the New World very early on. First-hand and second-hand accounts from Bartolomé de las Casas very jarring stuff on either end of Fernando Cervantes' Conquistadores. Which is correct? Which is the true account? Or, as I suspect, is it possible that all of the above is a true accounting of the interactions of Europeans with indigenous Americans? We'll get into all of that and more, rest assured. But first, as I said... We're going to read some commentary on Second Kings chapter 16, where Matthew Henry writes the following. This chapter is wholly taken up with the reign of Ahaz, and we have quite enough of it, unless it were better. He had a good father and a better son, and yet was himself one of the worst of the kings of Judah. 
One, he was a notorious idolater, verses 1 to 4. Two, with the treasures of the temple, as well as his own, he hired the king of Assyria to invade Syria and Israel, verses 5 to 9. Three, he took pattern from an idol's altar, which he saw at Damascus for a new altar in God's temple, verses 10 to 16. Lastly, four, he abused and embezzled the furniture of the temple, verses 17 and 18, and so his story ends, verses 19 and 20. So concerning the first four verses, Matthew Henry continues, we have here a general character of the reign of Ahaz, few and evil were his days, few, for he died at 36, evil, for we are here told, one, that he did not that which was right like David, verse 2, that is, He had none of that concern and affection for the instituted service and worship of God for which David was celebrated. He had no love for the temple, made no conscience of his duty to God, nor had any regard to his law. Herein he was unlike David. It was his honor that he was of the house and lineage of David, and it was owing to God's ancient covenant with David that he was now upon the throne, which aggravated his wickedness. For he was a reproach to that honorable name and family, which therefore was really a reproach to him. De generanti genus opprobrium. A good extraction is a disgrace to him who degenerates from it. And though he enjoyed the benefit of David's piety, he did not tread in the steps of it. Two, that he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, verse three, who all worshipped the calves. He was not joined in any affinity with them as Jehoram and Ahaziah were with the house of Ahab, but ex mero motu, without any instigation, walked in their way. The kings of Israel pleaded policy and reasons of state for their idolatry, but Ahaz had no such pretense. In him, it was the most unreasonable, impolitic thing that could be. They were his enemies and had proved enemies to themselves too by their idolatry, yet he walked in their way. Three, that he made his sons to pass through the fire to the honor of his dunghill deities. He burnt them. So it is expressly said of him, Second Chronicles 28.3, burnt some of them and perhaps made others of them. Hezekiah himself not accepted, though afterwards he was never the worse for it, to pass between two fires or to be drawn through a flame in token of their dedication to the idol. Four, that he did according to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out. It was an instance of his great folly that he would be guided in his religion by those whom he saw fallen into the ditch before his eyes and follow them. And it was an instance of his great impiety that he would conform to those usages which God had declared to be abominable to him and set himself to write after the copy of those whom God had cast out thus walking directly contrary to God. Five, that he sacrificed in the high places, verse four. If his father had but had zeal enough to take them away, the debauching of his sons might have been prevented. But those that connive at sin know not what dangerous snares they lay for those that come after them. He forsook God's house, was weary of that place where in his father's time he had often been detained before the Lord and performed his devotions on high hills, where he had a better prospect, and under green trees, where he had a more pleasant shade. It was a religion, little worth, which was guided by fancy, not by faith. 
verses 5 to 9, Matthew Henry has this to say about, here is one, the attempt of his confederate neighbors, the kings of Syria and Israel, upon him. They thought to make themselves masters of Jerusalem and to set a king of their own in it, Isaiah 7, 6. In this they fell short, but the king of Syria recovered Eleth, a considerable port upon the Red Sea, which Amaziah had taken from the Syrians, chapter 14, verse 22. What can those keep that have lost their religion? Let them expect, thenceforward, to be always on the losing hand. Two, his project to get clear of them. Having forsaken God, he had neither courage nor strength to make head against his enemies, nor could he, with any boldness, ask help of God, but he made his court to the king of Assyria and got him to come in for his relief. Those whose hearts condemn them will go anywhere in a day of distress rather than to God. Was it because there was not a God in Israel that he sent to the Assyrians for help? Was the rock of ages removed out of its place that he stayed himself on this broken reed? The sin itself was its own punishment for, though he gained his point, it is true the king of Assyria hearkened to him and to serve his own turn, made a descent upon Damascus, whereby he gave a powerful diversion to the king of Syria, verse 9, and obliged him to let fall his design against Ahaz, carrying the Syrians captive to Kir, as Amos had expressly foretold, chapter 1, verse 5. Yet, considering all, he made but a bad bargain, for to compass this, one, he enslaved himself, verse 7, I am thy servant and thy son, that is, I will be as dutiful and obedient to thee as to a master or father, if thou wilt but do me this good turn. Had he thus humbled himself to God and implored his favor, he might have been delivered upon easier terms. He might have saved his money and needed only to have parted with his sins. But if the prodigal forsake his father's house, he soon becomes a slave to the worst of masters. Luke 15.15 To He impoverished himself, for he took the silver and gold that were laid up in the treasury, both of the temple and of the kingdom, and sent it to the king of Assyria. Verse 8. Both church and state must be squeezed and exhausted to gratify this his new patron and guardian. I know not what authority he had thus to dispose of the public stock, but it is common for those that have brought themselves into straits by one sin to help themselves out by another and those that have alienated themselves from God will make no difficulty of alienating any of his rights. Verses 10 to 16, Though Ahaz had himself sacrificed in high places, on hills, and under every green tree, verse 4, yet God's altar had hitherto continued in its place and in use. And the king's burnt offering and his meat offering, verse 15, had been offered upon it by the priests that attended it, But here we have it taken away by wicked Ahaz, and another altar, an idolatrous one, put in the room of it a bolder stroke than the worst of the kings had yet given to religion. We have here, one, the model of this new altar, taken from one at Damascus by the king himself, verse 10. The king of Assyria, having taken Damascus, thither Ahaz went, to congratulate him on his success, to return him thanks for the kindness he had done him by this expedition and as his servant and son, to receive his commands. Had he been faithful to his God, he would not have needed to crouch thus meanly to a foreign power. At Damascus, either while viewing the rarities of the place, or rather while joining with them in their devotions, 
for when he was there, he thought it no harm to do as they did, he saw an altar that pleased his fancy extremely, not such a plain old-fashioned one as that which he had been trained up in attendance upon at Jerusalem, but curiously carved, it is likely, and adorned with image work. There were many pretty things about it which he thought significant, surprising, very charming, and calculated to excite his devotion. Solomon had but a dull fancy, he thought, compared with the ingenious artist that made this altar. Nothing will serve him, but he must have an altar just like this. A pattern of it must be taken immediately. He cannot stay till he returns himself, but sends it before him in all haste with orders to Uriah, the priest, to get one made exactly according to this model and have it ready against he came home. The pattern God showed to Moses in the mount or to David by the Spirit was not comparable to this pattern sent from Damascus. The hearts of idolaters walked after their eyes, which are therefore said to go a-whoring after their idols, but the true worshippers worship the true God by faith. To the making of it by Uriah, the priests. Verse 11, this Uriah, it is likely, was the chief priest who at this time presided in the temple service. To him, Ahaz sent an intimation of his mind, for we read not any express orders he gave him to get an altar made by this pattern. And without any dispute or objection, he put it in hand immediately, being perhaps as fond of it as the king was, at least being very willing to humor the king and desirous to curry favor with him. Perhaps he might have this excuse for gratifying the king herein, that by this means he might keep him to the temple at Jerusalem and prevent his totally deserting it for the high places and the groves. Let us oblige him in this, thinks Uriah, and then he will bring all his sacrifices to us, for by this craft we get our living. But whatever pretense he had, it was a most base, wicked thing for him that was a priest, a chief priest, to make this altar in compliance with an idolatrous prince. For hereby, one, he prostituted his authority and profaned the crown of his priesthood, making himself a servant to the lusts of men. There is not a greater disgrace to the ministry than obsequiousness to such wicked commands as this was. Two, he betrayed his trust. As priest, he was bound to maintain and defend God's institutions and to oppose and witness against all innovations and for him to assist and serve the king in setting up an altar to confront the altar which by divine appointment he was consecrated to minister at, was such a piece of treachery and perfidiousness as may justly render him infamous to all posterity. Had he only connived at the doing of it, had he been frightened into it by menaces, had he endeavored to dissuade the king from it, or but delayed the doing of it till he came home, that he might first talk with him about it, it would not have been so bad, but so willingly to walk after this commandment, as if he were glad of the opportunity to oblige him, was such an affront to the God he served as was utterly inexcusable. 3. The Dedicating of It Uriah, perceiving that the king's heart was much upon it, took care to have it ready against he came down and set it near the brazen altar, but somewhat lower and further from the door of the temple. The king was exceedingly pleased with it, approached it with all possible veneration, and offered thereon his burnt offering, etc. 
verse 12 and 13. His sacrifices were not offered to the God of Israel, but to the gods of Damascus, as we find Second Chronicles 28, 23. And when he borrowed the Syrian's altar, no marvel that he borrowed their gods. Naaman, the Syrian, embraced the God of Israel when he got earth from the land of Israel to make an altar of, for the removal of God's altar to make room for it. Uriah was so modest that he put this altar at the lower end of the court and left God's altar in its place between this and the house of the Lord, verse 14. But that would not satisfy Ahaz. He removed God's altar to an obscure corner in the north side of the court and put his own before the sanctuary in the place of it. He thinks his new altar is much more stately and much more sightly and disgraces that. And therefore, let that be laid aside as a vessel in which there is no pleasure. His superstitious invention at first jostled with God's sacred institution, but at length jostled it out. Note, those will soon come to make nothing of God that will not be content to make him their all. Ahaz durst not, perhaps for fear of the people, quite demolish the brazen altar and knock it to pieces. But while he ordered all the sacrifices to be offered upon this new altar, verse 15, the brazen altar, says he, shall be for me to inquire by. Having thrust it out from the use for which it was instituted, which was to sanctify the gifts offered upon it, he pretends to advance it above its institution, which it is common for superstitious people to do. The altar was never designed for an oracle, yet Ahaz will have it for that use. The Romish church seemingly magnifies Christ's sacraments, yet wretchedly corrupts them. But some give another sense of Ahaz's purpose. As for the brazen altar, I will consider what to do with it and give order about it. The Jews say that afterward of the brass of it, he made that famous dial, which was called the dial of Ahaz, chapter 20, verse 11, the base compliance of the poor-spirited priest with the presumptuous usurpations of an ill-spirited king is again taken notice of, verse 16. Uriah the priest did according to all that King Ahaz commanded. Miserable is the case of great men when those that should reprove them for their sins strengthen and serve them in their sins. Concerning verses 17 to 20, Matthew Henry has this to say. Here is one Ahaz abusing the temple, not the building itself, but some of the furniture of it. One, he defaced the bases on which the lavers were set. 1 Kings 7, 28 and 29, and took down the molten sea, verse 17. These the priests used for washing. Against them, therefore, he seems to have had a particular spite. It is one of the greatest prejudices that can be done to religion to obstruct the purifying of the priests, the Lord's ministers. Two, he removed the covert for the Sabbath, erected either in honor of the Sabbath or for the conveniency of the priests when on the Sabbath they officiated in greater numbers than on other days. Whatever it was, it should seem that in removing it, he intended to put a contempt upon the Sabbath and so to open as wide an inlet as any to all manner of impiety. The king's entry, three, which led to the house of the Lord for the convenience of the royal family, perhaps that ascent 
which Solomon had made and which the queen of Sheba admired, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 5, he turned another way to show that he did not intend to frequent the house of the Lord any more. This he did for the king of Assyria to oblige him, who perhaps returned his visit and found fault with this entry as an inconvenience and disparagement to his palace. When those that have had a ready passage to the house of the Lord to please their neighbors turn it another way, they are going down the hill apace towards their ruin. Section 2, Ahaz resigning his life in the midst of his days at 36 years of age, verse 19, and leaving his kingdom to a better man, Hezekiah his son, verse 20, who proved as much a friend to the temple as he had been an enemy to it. Perhaps this very son he had made to pass through the fire and thereby dedicated him to Moloch, but God, by his grace, snatched him as a brand out of the burning. And that concludes our reading of Matthew Henry's commentary. Of course, in the next case, in the next chapter, we will get into more concerning Hezekiah and what happens next with regards to Assyria and the people of Israel. It's wild stuff. Buckle up. But for now, let's get into some books. Let's review some books that are a little more contemporary, but no less relevant, actually. In fact, the reading of this passage is very timely with considering these three books and the general subject shared in common between them. First up, consider Nine Years Among the Indians, 1870 to 1879, the story of the captivity and life of a Texan among the Indians. Herman Lehman, as a young child, Goodreads tells us, was captured by a band of plundering Apache Indians and remained with them for nine years. This is his dramatic and unique story. His memoir, fast-paced and compelling, tells of his arduous initial years with the Apache as he underwent a sometimes tortuous initiation into Indian life. Peppered with various escape attempts, Lehman's recollections are fresh and exciting in spite of the years past. Lehman provides us with a fascinating look at Apache and later Comanche culture. He tells of their rituals, medicinal practices, and gives an insight into Native American manufacture of arrowheads, saddles, and shields. After a few years, Lehman became completely integrated into the warrior life, joining in on raids throughout the Southwest and Mexico. Nine Years with the Indians tells of violent clashes with white rangers and other Native American tribes, scalpings, and the violence of life in 19th century Western America. Quote, a fascinating account of Lehman's subsequent life among both the Apache and Comanche people. This is an engaging read. That's a quote from German Life, which must be a magazine. I'm just guessing. <laughs> German Life, probably kind of like Life magazine, but more interested in, if you're German, what does life look like for you? What life looked like for Hermann Lehman, having read this last week, it was pretty brutal. There's just no sugarcoating it. There's no dressing it up. It was brutal, German or otherwise. Whatever your ethnicity, whatever your tribe, Herman Lehman was a child. He shouldn't have been treated the way that he was treated. And 
it's highly disturbing that the account has such a believability to it at various points being rather matter of fact and not seeming to embellish negative details, if anything, giving them a rather understated flavor. Herman Lehman was tortured after having been kidnapped. He was made into a slave. And at various times, it's very clear from the narrative that he thought that the Apache were going to kill him as they killed plenty of other white men, women, and children in the area. He talks in nine years among the Indians about going on raids, encountering Mexicans or white Americans, settlers in Texas and in the broader region. He talks about their band encountering other Indians and how quickly an encounter turned into the most brutal violence, torture, sometimes preceding a grisly death. And what strikes me about nine years among the Indians, nine years for a little boy is that it seems as though the only reason they accepted him is because he was willing to participate with them in what they were doing. The expectation was, you're going to do this gross thing. You're going to eat this. You're going to fetch this honey from this crevice. You're going to participate in killing or scalping. You're going to steal. You're going to scout. You're going to fight. And then we'll accept you as one of us because that's what's most important. Are you helping us to accomplish our larger goal, if we even know what that is? And that's another interesting thing that comes through is you have not just the targets of opportunity in the West, in the Southwest, I suppose, more specifically, being easy prey for this band of Apache. But you also have the conversation recorded among the native tribes as they get together. And Geronimo is mentioned in brief passing as if, oh yeah, yeah, he was around. And we went to a big get together one time and a number of important leaders said, this is what we think we should do. We need to stop fighting amongst ourselves. If we don't get together and work together to drive out the white man, the white man is going to swallow us up. There's a casual quality to the account of violence perpetrated by the Apache and the Comanche against one another, against other tribes, and against the white man. And what's fascinating too is if this were reversed, which actually we'll get into scenarios in which this sort of a treatment, this sort of an interaction does appear to have been reversed. But if this situation were reversed in 1870, let's say that a Native American boy around about 10 or 11 years old was taken captive by white men and treated the way that Herman Lehman was treated by the Apache, that would be all any of the modern left in America cared about. If they find even the barest rumor, even just hearsay, that white Europeans settling in the United States or in Canada 
related to indigenous peoples, first nations, they call them. Next thing you know, churches are being defaced. This happened in Canada where there was rumor that perhaps a whole lot of unmarked graves of native children had been identified via ground penetrating radar in the vicinity of a Catholic orphanage or a Catholic school. And without even digging, without even verifying that the objects, the anomalies identified in the LIDAR or the ground penetrating radar were in fact human remains, the next thing you know, Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, was making a big to-do about publicly apologizing. The Roman Catholic Church was publicly apologizing. The media was running with the story, interviewing indigenous peoples in that area, browbeating the descendants of the white Europeans in Canada and, by extension, of course, in the United States as well. And then, wouldn't you know it, some time passed after churches were vandalized, threats were made to vandalize more churches and hurt more Christians in Canada. Efforts were made to actually dig where the anomalies had been identified that were thought to be unmarked graves of Native children. Perhaps a whole lot of Native children had just been killed, buried quietly, murdered, essentially, in this place where supposedly they were going to be taught to be Christians. And wouldn't you know it, no human remains were found. All they found were rocks. So there was zero evidence. Once they actually went to verify what are these anomalies, there was zero evidence to support the claim that had become international news and had led to quite a lot of anti-Western, anti-Christian sentiment unleashed in Canada, in the U.S., and around the world. But just imagine if it turned out that a memoir like this were to be found wherein a homestead descended on by an Apache raiding party saw a young boy, a young girl carried off to be slaves and at a certain point when they wouldn't stop crying, two big braves riding on horses alongside on either side of the little girl mounted on a horse, each grabbed her by an arm and lifted her as the horse continued on. And then the one of them, by the arm, swung her once, twice, three times, and then let her fly. Herman Lehman says when she hit the ground, she stayed very still, dead. And if not dead from the fall, she was soon enough dead when these big braves trampled her body under their horses and did the same to her brother as well. That sort of treatment of white children because they were white and because they were targets of opportunity is contrasted with accounts of white people, white European descendant Americans, Canadians, having orphanages, teaching Native American children to read and to speak and to write in English converting them to Christianity, having them wear Western attire, teaching them trades, teaching them Western manners. Now, wait a second, wait a second. When given the opportunity, the Apache 
were certainly willing to do a similar sort of a thing to a little German immigrant boy in Hermann Lehmann, only when they were adapting a little German boy to their way of life, it turns out they were teaching him to steal and to murder and to scalp, insisting that he would participate with them in their crimes, which in his later life he regretted, but at the time he was just a boy and he didn't know any better, he says. He sees now that what he did was wrong, but at the time it was so casual and it was so matter of fact, and it became such a way of life that he actually regarded those white people as deserving it almost after a fashion. And this isn't to say, again, as we'll get into it more in just a moment, it's not to say that the Native Americans deserved it. Oh, if there were Native Americans who believed that white people as a general rule deserve this sort of treatment, then right back at you, guys. No, 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 no. But it is to say that a romantic view of indigenous Americans, Native Americans, cannot be maintained when you actually know what you're talking about, when you actually read firsthand accounts with more than just an ax to grind against Western civilization and Christianity and Europeans. If the truth be known, Native Americans didn't get the nickname Savage for no reason. There were pleasant, sweet, kind, gracious Native American people, and there were brutal, savage, barbaric, animalistic Native Americans. And as we'll see in a moment, as we'll read in a moment, there were kind, sweet, gracious, decent-hearted, upstanding, hardworking, pleasant, charitable Europeans who came to the New World. And there were brutal, savage, violent, ruthless, cruel, evil Europeans. Because guess what? People are people. For our next title, though, Conquistadores, A New History of Spanish Discovery and Conquest, published in 2020. Author Fernando Cervantes, Goodreads, has this to say about a book with a 3.9 out of 5 stars average. I gave it four. I didn't give it five. I'm not going to give it five, but I think far too many people dragged the overall rating down because they don't like that he's not engaging in hyperbolic, oh, the Europeans were only ever bad and evil and terrible and they never did anything good. There were only bad Europeans. He doesn't engage in that. He doesn't romanticize the indigenous peoples. And he also doesn't romanticize the Europeans to say, oh, the Europeans were only ever the ambassadors of Christianity and civilization and progress. And it was just those Native Americans, those savages, those backwards peoples. They got what was coming to them. He doesn't do either of those two things. He tries to present, quite simply, the truth. But here's what Goodreads has to say in the summary of his book, probably from the publisher. Quote, a sweeping authoritative history that aims to deepen our understanding of the campaigns and conquests that propelled a small European kingdom to become one of the greatest empires in the world. Over the few short decades that followed Christopher Columbus's first landing in the Caribbean in 1492, Spain conquered the two most formidable civilizations of the Americas, the Aztecs of Mexico 
and the Incas of Peru. Hernán Cortés, Francisco Pizarro, and other explorers and soldiers that took part in these expeditions dedicated their lives to seeking political and religious glory, helping to build an empire unlike any the world had ever seen. Centuries later, two dominant narratives about these conquests have prevailed. One of the romance and exoticism of adventure, the other of cruelty and exploitation of innocent people at the service of politics and religious bigotry. In The Conquistadors, Mexican historian Fernando Cervantes, himself a descendant of one of the conquistadors, tells the complete story of the conquests while steering a middle course between these two viewpoints. He argues that while the conquistadors had undeniable faults, the tendency to condemn them tells us more about our modern sense of shame than it does about their original intentions. Drawing upon previously untapped primary sources that include diaries, letters, chronicles, and polemical treatises, Cervantes reframes the story of the Spanish conquest of the New World, examining the late medieval world from which the conquistadors emerged. At the heart of the story are the conquistadors themselves, whose epic ambitions and moral contradictions defined an era, as well as their supporters and detractors. Cervantes helps us understand them on their own terms and shows us how their achievements still have much to tell us in our increasingly post-nationalist world. Now, about this book, as I've already teased, there are quite a few very bad ratings, very low star ratings. And as I was skimming them, curious what other people thought of this book, I found a common sentiment that if anything was presented as a little more nuanced than is often admitted as far as the portrayal of the Spaniards or the context in which they made their decisions? What was the context of their coming to the new world in the first place? And also, what was the back and forth like from the new world to the old? As the exploration was underway, as interactions with indigenous peoples were leading to an expansion of territory, the finding of gold, the report or rumor of even more gold to be found, but also as reports were filtering back of atrocities committed by the conquistadors against the native indigenous peoples. What was the reaction in the old world? What did the king and queen of Spain, for instance, think about this? What did the church think about this? What did churchmen, what did monks and friars and priests think about what they were seeing if they went to the new world? what they were hearing if they were getting reports back from missionaries who had come to the New World to accompany the conquistadors. Not quite a one-to-one -one ratio with how, say for instance, as the British were building their global empire, complaints of abuses and corruption with the colonial administration in, let's say, India, for instance, shocked the conscience of the Queen of England, or the people of England. Not quite a one-to-one -one ratio with regards to that, but very similar, broadly speaking, is the dynamic that Fernando Cervantes details and explains. As we'll talk about here in just a minute with Bartolomé de las Casas' book, 
a brief account of the destruction of the Indies. Even just the publishing of that book, even just that work existing at all and being written by a European with an appeal to the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, that is also the legacy of Christian civilization. And you might say, ah, what, some legacy. Some Europeans had a guilty conscience. No, 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 but listen. How often do you find any such similar feature in non-Western, non-Christian civilization? If atrocities, say for instance, were perpetrated against a 10 or 11-year-old German immigrant boy in Hermann Lehmann by the Apaches who took him captive, and then he served as an eyewitness of many more atrocities, which he was with the party as they committed, or he participated in per their instructions, otherwise they would have killed him. Do we find in the treatment of a Herman Lehman, someone like Bartolomé de las Casas writing to the most important chief of the Apaches or the Comanches ever, complaining of the treatment of the white settlers, innocent women and children, caught by surprise, let's say, for instance, as they were feeding their animals, as they were cooking a meal, as they were doing their laundry, being then summarily brutalized. Do we find some Native American equivalent of Bartolome de las Casas? Or if we go to some other part of the world, non-Western, non-Christian, and we find violent actions, brutal treatment of vulnerable targets of opportunity, let's say, for instance, if you had initial colonization or trading post construction efforts on some island or on the coast of Africa or in some Asian country, do we find indigenous peoples writing to the king, writing to an emperor, writing even to a prominent local chief to say, this shocks the conscience and this is not who we are? Well, if there are such works, they don't get near as much press, if any at all. They get no play. What is very popular, though, what is very convenient, actually, I think, for those trying to push the post-nationalist world to the extreme, abolishing borders between nations, abolishing even the idea of nations. Forget nationalism. What is called nationalism increasingly is when someone within a country pushes back and says, actually, we like being a distinct and separate country and having our own culture, having our own laws, having our own way of life. We like having our own language. We like having our own laws. We like having our own identity as a nation, as a people that is distinct. The likes of Bartolomé de las Casas, that narrative, insofar as it is perceived that Western civilization needs to be brought very low, there needs to be a leveling of the playing field if Christianity is going to even participate in the new paradigm, the new social imaginary in a globalist future on the right side of history, Western civilization and especially Christianity has to be brought low or else abolished. And what's so fascinating is in that campaign, we find an expression of the very same bigotry which those who 
jump on the bandwagon of denouncing Europeans always everywhere. They explored, traded, engaged in military exercises, waged war, and yes, colonized, are condemned for. What's so fascinating is if you strip away the Christianity, as if the Christianity being excessive is what led to the conquistadors treating indigenous peoples at their mercy, again, targets of opportunity. If we strip away the Christianity as if it was excess Christianity that licensed them, justified in their own minds their treatment of the indigenous peoples, I would argue we find even more brutal treatment. We find the eradication wholly and entirely. What curbed the atrocities was the Christian conscience and the Christianized conscience of the old world. Even if this or that rogue actor, this or that corrupt abuser of mankind might claim (laughs) in his letter, his account to the king from the new world, he might claim he was advancing Christianity. And then the rest of the story came out and some hard questions led to his being recalled or his being demoted or his being censured or his not getting approval for some new stock of supplies shipped from Spain. He is not getting a royal charter. He is not getting the grant of land and titles. In fact, somebody being sent to remove him from a position of authority is what happened as often as not. And that Fernando Cervantes is trying to tell that story as well, because that is part of the story, that that earns in a lot of readers' minds a one or a two-star rating because they love simple ways, because they are simple and they love simple ways and they don't want their overly romanticized view of the natives and their demonized, familiar portrayal of the Europeans to be tampered with or adjusted or contradicted. I think what we would benefit from is more of this type of material, this type of treatment of the historical reality. I think this was a very, very good history. It was well written. It was balanced. And it accords with, I think, on both ends of the spectrum, credible accounts of atrocities, but also credible accounts of encountering decent people who were kind. That's one thing about Herman Lehman's Nine Years Among the Indians is he talks about this or that character among the indigenous peoples, usually a wife of someone that had taken him captive, regarding him as a child, treating him as if she was his mother, being kind towards him in that way, or some girl about his age, saving him at the last moment from most certain death because she ran up and threw her arms around him and pleaded for his life. We find a maternal instinct among the indigenous peoples. We also find what appears to be genuine piety on the part of Europeans in cases where the shoe was on the other foot and the indigenous peoples were completely at the mercy of Europeans who had armor and swords made of steel and firearms and Western ways of making war. We find what appear to be truly pious men who had come to the new world to preach the gospel. 
and to convert the heathen to Christianity. And when they got to the new world, they saw those who claimed to be warriors for Christ enslaving, torturing, cruelly murdering, raping, and otherwise in every way they could possibly think to sinning against indigenous peoples. And they realized that the biggest barrier, the biggest impediment to preaching the gospel to these indigenous peoples was going to be their countrymen who were presenting a very, very bad example of Christian civilization, claiming in the name of Christ and the king to be doing right, they were doing evil. And they needed to be told to repent. They needed to be told to stop. They needed to be made to stop if they wouldn't stop. But then guess what? Here's the other piece of that. When you say, we're going to treat all people the same, irrespective of the color of their skin, you have to, if you're consistent, not just tell the white European who is behaving cruel and being barbarous, torturing innocent men, women, and children just because he can, enslaving them, murdering them. You have to not just have moral outrage and disgust for him when he's the white man doing it in relation to the indigenous American. If you're a contemporary of these conquistadors in the 15th and 16th century, you have to not just be telling that white man, that conquistador, to stop it or go and appeal to the king, the emperor, to make him stop it. In the interest of consistency, when you see indigenous Americans relating that way to one another, or if you see indigenous Americans relating to white Europeans who weren't all misbehaving all the time, that way, when they have the chance, they also do what is evil against men, women, and children just because they can. You have to also call them to repentance. Or if they won't stop it, you have to find somebody and petition someone who will make them stop it. And therein lies the clash of civilizations. Because guess what? It's credible, in my mind anyway, that the conquistadors coming from the old world, encountering the Aztecs and the Inca, for instance, saw cruel, evil, barbaric treatment of the indigenous peoples towards one another. Because guess what? It wasn't just, ah, the Europeans are awful to the Native Americans, or the Native Americans are awful to the Europeans, or we can't possibly know. No, no, no. You had Europeans awful to Native Americans, Native Americans awful to Europeans, and also Native Americans awful to one another. The Aztecs having mass human sacrifice rituals on their pyramid, the disposal of human remains, eating people. We see that in the accounts, the firsthand eyewitness accounts of the conquistadors. We also see it in Herman Lehman's book, Nine Years Among the Indians. He talks about this relatively unknown to me tribe, which was employed as scouts, and they worked with the white man to make war against the Apache and the Comanche. But they come across a band which has just had a fight, which had just surprised some of the numbers, some of the tribe that Layman was among, and drove off the rest, but killed some. 
and they come into their camp and they catch them by surprise and they find that this other tribe runs for it, leaves their camp, runs off into the darkness. But then lo and behold, there's a fire in the middle of the camp and there's some meat cooking on the fire. And what is the meat that's cooking on the fire? It's the leg of one of the braves this tribe had just killed of their enemy. As in, they were roasting so that they would eat some member of the enemy tribe. And when the band that Herman Lehman was with saw this, rather than being content to let this other tribe just run off into the darkness, and if they get away, they get away, they pursued after them until they overtook them. And then they not only defeated them, and they didn't just kill them, they took their time with it. Because guess what? Native American peoples, indigenous American peoples, apart from Christ, also behaved in very unchristian ways. It wasn't just that some white Europeans made a pretense of virtue and pretended to be Christians or claimed that they were acting on behalf of the church and the crown and did horrible evil things to the indigenous peoples. And it wasn't just that the indigenous peoples behaved monstrously and in an unchristian way, go figure, towards Europeans now and again. They behaved towards one another in a very unchristian way. And guess what? This is also part of why, part of how it is that the Europeans were able to conquer the Aztecs and the Incas and various other very powerful tribes. This is part of the story that this tribe and that tribe did not get along. They had always hated each other. They had beef going back decades or centuries. It was a bitter rivalry. They hated one another. And here came Europeans with armor and weapons and horses and the Western way of making war, as Victor Davis Hanson talks about in Carnage and Culture. One tribe or the other, it doesn't matter which It played out again and again and again and again, all up and down the Americas. One tribe or the other would decide that friendship with the Europeans had its advantages, and they might just tip the balance of power in favor of us if we partner with them, if we help them, if we give them some food and give them some lodging and protect them and scout for them, if we advise them, if we make a deal with them, if we make an agreement to work together against a common foe. And all it took was Europeans being embraced by one or the other tribe in a protracted, long-standing state of war with another. And that other seeing, oh, you're with them now. Okay, well then we hate you like we hate them. If the enemy, if my enemy is my friend, the friend of my enemy is also my enemy. And again, this played out again and again and again all throughout the Americas, What's remarkable is not just that conquistadors behaved badly, were bloodthirsty at various times, became cruel, were greedy, avaricious, hypocritical. That's not so surprising. Even God's people in the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, this or that king comes to power. And the previous generation, the previous king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, it says, and here comes this newcomer, here comes this new king, and it says he does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. But just a generation or two ago, we were building a temple to the one true God in Jerusalem, and now, now what are we doing? What are, what are we doing? 
what hijacking religion to go after political rivals to secure a grip on power and the title and the throne to expand our holdings, manipulating religious rules and observances, making false claims so as to go after somebody who even just has a vineyard that borders our property because he wouldn't sell it to us. See also Naboth. None of this is surprising regarding human nature for the Christian who has read their Bible. And this has been true for 2,000 some years of Christians being familiar with the Old Testament. And then as the New Testament was written, studying it, meditating on it, understanding not just who is God, but who are we in relation to God? Who are we in relation to one another? How do we so often relate when we go awry? How do other people go awry? How do even people who make a claim of loving God misbehave sometimes? That Fernando Cervantes would write an account, which it tempts at least, to explain the context, I think is extraordinarily helpful. And we need more focus on context and not just when the left sees some points to score against their contemporary political opponents. Because that's another thing. Just like all it took very often for one Native American tribe to decide that they absolutely hated the Europeans and were going to make merciless war on them was their enemy tribe of indigenous peoples who they had hated for generations untold, having become friends with the Europeans. So also when the narrative appears to be friendly to conservatives, you know, you know that progressives are going to regard the narrative, however true, however valid, however innocent, however legitimate, they will regard that narrative in a story or in a history like conquistadores as their enemy. And this gets to the distinction between rejoicing in the truth, loving what is good, studying to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth on the one hand, and on the other hand, loving pleasure. And our God being our stomach, our stomach being our God, food for the body and the body for food. But let's do talk about the third book here. Goodreads does not give me much. <laughs> not much. Or what Goodreads does give me is scattered. This is a very old work originally published in 1552. And the editions, the various printings, they're so scattered throughout Goodreads. I just picked one here recently to mark it as read because I was listening to it on Audible. Pretty much all I get in that edition that I picked is that there were 3,702 ratings, 471 reviews of this edition, this copy that out of five stars, the average is 3.72. The summary is very brief. This book was converted from its physical edition to the digital format by a community of volunteers. You may find it for free on the web. We get much more about the author. And so I'll read for you the about the author because that's common to all the editions. Bartolome de las Casas, OP, November 1484 to 18th July 1566, was a 16th century Spanish historian, social reformer, and Dominican friar. He became the first resident bishop of Chiapas and the first officially appointed protector of the Indians. Now that's fascinating. 
That's really, really interesting. What a title. Protector of the Indians. Did the Indians have a protector of the white man officially appointed? Probably not. Probably not. Not that I've encountered in any of my reading about this time period forward. His extensive writings, the most famous being a short account of the destruction of the Indies and Historia de las Indias, chronicle the first decades of colonization of the West Indies and focus particularly on the atrocities committed by the colonizers against the indigenous peoples. In 1515, he reformed his views, gave up his Indian slaves and encomienda, and advocated before King Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, on behalf of rights for the natives. In his early writings, he advocated the use of African slaves instead of natives in the West Indian colonies. Consequently, criticisms have been leveled at him as being partly responsible for the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade. Go figure. How about that? There's a fun fact for you. Later in life, he retracted those early views as he came to see all forms of slavery as equally wrong. In 1522, he attempted to launch a new kind of peaceful colonialism on the coast of Venezuela, but this venture failed, causing Las Casas to enter the Dominican order and become a friar, leaving the public scene for a decade. He then traveled to Central America, undertaking peaceful evangelization among the Maya of Guatemala and participated in debates among the Mexican churchmen about how best to bring the natives to the Christian faith. Traveling back to Spain, he recruited more missionaries, continued lobbying for the abolition of the encomienda, gaining an important victory by the passing of the new laws In 1542, he was appointed Bishop of Chiapas, but served only for a short time before he was forced to return to Spain because of resistance to the new laws by the encomenderos and conflicts with Spanish settlers because of his pro-Indian policies and activist religious stances. The remainder of his life was spent at the Spanish court where he held great influence over Indies-related issues. In 1550, he participated in the Valladolid debate. He argued against Juan Ginés Sepulveda that the Indians were fully human and that forcefully subjugating them was unjustifiable. Sepulveda countered that they were less than human and required Spanish masters in order to become civilized. Bartolomé de las Casas spent 50 years of his life actively fighting slavery and the violent colonial abuse of indigenous peoples, especially by trying to convince the Spanish court to adopt a more humane policy of colonization. His efforts resulted in several improvements in the legal status of the natives and in an increased colonial focus on the ethics of colonialism. Las Casas is often seen as one of the first advocates for universal human rights. Now, before I skip on over to the Wikipedia page for a short account, also called a brief account of the destruction of the Indies, I just want to comment on how complicated a figure Bartolomé de las Casas is if you embrace him as a person in this day and age, you may have Black Lives Matter, 1619 Project type people sharpening the pitchforks and wetting their torches. Because as it says here, in his early years, he floated the idea, no pun intended, of bringing black Africans to be slaves in the new world as a solution to the problem of depending on the slave labor of the indigenous peoples. Later in life, whether he regretted that, whether he said, no, actually, it's all wrong. We shouldn't be participating in the enslavement of anybody, anywhere, 
because the black Africans are human too. Well, the prevailing notion now is he would still need to be canceled because however nice it was that he was grappling with what we now regard as universal human rights, no matter how great it was that he was advocating for legal status and protections for the indigenous peoples, that he argued in favor of the enslavement of black Africans, well, that just can't be born. But what you'll find is the likes of Howard Zinn will cite Bartolome de las Casas, the folks who want to say that the founding of the United States of America was actually 1619. And the whole point was so that people who wanted to enslave people of color from Europe, they came to enslave the people of color and to steal their land and to abuse them because that's what really drew them to the new world. De Las Casas is a useful source. And so he's cited very often by the likes of Howard Zinn to bang the drum of anti-Western, anti-Christian sentiment in our day, which not coincidentally, very often ends up being pro-Marxist, pro-communism. Instead of seeing Christian faith as driving the West towards fair treatment, decent treatment, kindness, decency towards Native Americans and the eventual abolition of slavery throughout the British Empire and then in 1860s America, abolition of slavery in the United States. Instead of seeing Christian consciences, Christian scripture, Christian truth, Christian faith as the missing ingredient in so many cases, the communists want to see an excess of Christianity as being what the issue was all along, what they neglect, what they stubbornly refuse to talk about or acknowledge or give sufficient credit to is the fact of slavery in the Americas before and after European influence, as in the natives enslaved one another and treated one another in barbarous ways. It wasn't like so many want to believe that the indigenous Americans lived at peace with one another and with nature until those white devils showed up and ruined everything. If anything, actually, what you might find, the more you study the history of it, is there were some very satanic and demonic trends. The religion of the indigenous Americans, especially in Mexico, with the Aztecs, it was murderous on a large scale for religious purposes, for religious reasons, supposedly. And the Aztecs, through terror, through force of arms and through terror, had subjugated surrounding peoples. And everybody who wasn't considered an equal partner with them was always in some danger of being carried off into slavery and then subsequently being offered up as human sacrifices by the Aztecs to their gods. What you'll find if you study the history of this, even into the 1870s, even though slavery of black Africans had been abolished in the United States, the Apache and the Comanche took slaves of white Americans. Actually, the Cherokee had a tremendous number of slaves that they took with them to Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears. The Native Americans had slaves. They kept slaves, and they didn't learn it from the Europeans. 
actually, if anything, it's reasonable to suppose that in many cases, you had people coming from Christian or Christianized European civilization to the New World encountering all manner of barbaric treatment, sometimes directed at them, sometimes just observing that this was how the indigenous peoples treated one another. And as they had perhaps in Europe taken their cues as to personal morality, personal character, what is right, what is good to do, what is acceptable from what was normative when they found themselves in the new world and they observed barbaric cruelty, indigenous peoples being cruel towards other indigenous peoples. And they had allies who said, let's work together. And the shoe was suddenly on the other foot. They let the indigenous Americans set the tone for themselves until in many cases, it was just a thin veil of Christian language covering what had become actually their going native, their going savage. But then another way to look at it is human beings, man, descended from Adam, apart from Christ, of every skin color, of every nation, in every part of the world, for all of history, apart from Christ, will act this way towards fellow man. And it's more exceptional if you find anybody in any context, in any civilization, in any culture, ever saying, hey, you know what? This is wrong. Stop. Don't do that. I used to do that too, but it's wrong. We need to stop this. You know, one of the books that I'm reading right now is Emperor, A New Life of Charles V by Geoffrey Parker, centered on the life of the King Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, Bartolome de las Casas, was writing to and making an appeal to. And what's interesting is another of the books that I recently read was On Christian Liberty, Concerning Christian Liberty, by Martin Luther, writing around this time, interestingly enough, writing to Pope Leo in very similar phrased appeals to a prince, a prince of the church, of course, Nevertheless, a prince of Western Europe, of Western civilization, making an appeal for how we should regard those who have faith in Christ if they live and act and speak freely, what the basis is for a Christian view of liberty. Another of the books that I'm reading right now is John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, addressed to the King of France, King Francis I, also around this time. He comes up, King Francis of France comes up in Emperor, A New Life of Charles V, because this is all happening around about the same time. You have this debate going on in Western Europe, and it's not just that the Europeans were awful to the Native Americans, and it's not just that the Native Americans could be awful to the Europeans, and it's not just that the Native Americans could be awful to other Native Americans. Guess what? It was also very often the case that Europeans were awful to other Europeans because the common denominator is the human condition and what is in man's heart. Yes, liberty is a wonderful aspirational goal, wanting to be free, wanting others to be free. When you see them in hard bondage, you see them oppressed, you see them treated inhumanely. And who in the world, in human history has consistently, and I would say exclusively, 
argued against enslavement and for emancipation, for the fair treatment of human beings by their fellow man and the protection of the laws, equal protection of the laws, for even the least of these, whatever excuses may be made for their mistreatment, for the disposal of their bodies, for the abuse of their bodies and their minds, it's Christians who, reading God's word and contrasting what God says is good with what they see in themselves and what they see in the people around them, feeling pricked in their consciences, it was Christians again and again, it is still Christians again and again, who say, stop. We have to stop doing this. This is wrong. Repent. There's a God in heaven who will judge on the last day this behavior. Repent while there's still time. Don't treat each other this way. Making appeals, in the case of Calvin and Luther and, yes, Bartolome de las Casas, to the kings of France and the kings of Spain and the popes. It's men just like these making appeals around about this time who very often found that in the old world, there was quite a lot of ambition of a selfish kind, greed, avarice, pride that got in the way. Because what was the response of Pope Leo to the letter from Martin Luther, the book from Martin Luther? What was the response of the King of France to John Calvin? Now, to his credit, it seems so far, and I'm still studying this, so I don't know whether this is entirely justified that I would say this, but to his credit, it seems to me as though King Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, having Bartolome de las Casas become a very influential person in his court, advising on policy in relation to Spain's holdings and doings in the New World, the King of Spain, the Holy Roman Emperor, was very responsive to the arguments because he too and his advisors and the general culture of the old world, like the culture generally of the British people, say, for instance, 150, 200 years later in the days of Edmund Burke, the Christianized conscience of Europe was responsive to calls for repentance. Now, it doesn't matter, colonial administrator in India, it doesn't matter that you're on the opposite side of the world and you ran into some challenges and you're making these claims about how they really deserved it. They had it coming. No, we didn't do that. But if we did, they had it coming. Now, it doesn't matter, Juan de, whoever you are, what you say about the indigenous peoples being less than human. They look pretty human to us. And it's a curious thing, if you don't regard them as fully human, that you so often relate to their women the way that you do. Well, that's a very curious thing. It's a very curious thing that we have missionaries going to convert them as if they are men, converting them to Christianity. So we regard them as men. And so how can you say you're advancing the cause of Christ and also that you don't think of these peoples as like you created in the image of Almighty God? The Imago Dei and Christ's great commission, and yes, even what Paul writes in Romans 13 about being subject to the governing authorities, because God institutes authorities among men, only God institutes them to reward those who do what is good, to punish those who do what is evil, bearing the sword for something. All of the above came together in Western civilization in the legacy of Christian and Christianized Europe to grapple with 
hey, is this something we really should be doing? Hey, you over there. Yeah, stop that. No, 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 no. No, that's not okay. That's not okay. Stop it or else. I don't bear the sword for nothing. You can't have it, as I was saying, you can't have it both ways, that it's appropriate for us to condemn the Europeans when they related to the Native American people in the worst ways, but it's not appropriate that the Europeans would also contribute and partner with, in many cases, Native American peoples to make other Native American peoples stop abusing them. It's also, it must be, if it was appropriate for the Europeans to police their own, it must be appropriate that the indigenous Americans, after a long string of abuses at the hands of their neighbors, seized on an opportunity to make friends and allies with Europeans if they were willing to trade with them and help deal with a pressing existential problem. Say, for instance, in the Mexica and how they related. What's difficult is differentiating fact from fiction. How much of this is high on emotion, somebody just being so beside themselves angry with bad things they've seen that all they can talk about is the bad stuff with regards to those they want to stop from being abusive anymore. You have to take into account that emotions running high, that's going to tilt and make hyperbolic sometimes the accounts that are brought down through the centuries. And other times, you have to admit that there is self-interest driving the defense. Oh, I didn't do anything. No, that's fine. I'm completely innocent. Yeah, tell it to the judge. God knows. For our purposes, what we know for sure, what we have to find interesting is that there were debates in Europe as to how Christians, how those who claim to be Christians should relate to one another and how they should relate to non-Christian peoples. And that's very unusual. That's very spectacular. It's not that anybody who was European or claimed to be Christian misbehaved. Oh man, well, Christianity must not be true. Stop. What's remarkable is that there were Christians who misbehaved or there were those who claimed to be Christians who misbehaved in other cases, and they weren't really Christians. And there were others who were Christians and claimed to be Christians who said, this is not Christian behavior. Bartolome de las Casas does not give any, any slack to those who said, I'm a Christian, even as they were behaving in demonic ways, evil ways towards Native Americans. He calls them out in the strongest possible language, language that easily rivals the most heated rhetoric of Martin Luther against papists and the sellers of indulgences. Because guess what? There's another expression of exploitation of common people. The claim is made, we're here to bring them Jesus, to do the Lord's work. All the while, the sheep are being fleeced and led astray and abused, preyed upon. Because guess what? Some of those who claim to be acting in the name of Christ are just wolves in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves and they're false teachers and they need to be confronted. And unfortunately, in our day, down to our time, doctrinal minimalism is preferred in so many cases. And the most radical left hijacking the Christian message and the history of the church in the Americas or even in the old world with the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation and all the rest The radical left gets a free pass to set the tone 
and to craft the narrative. We as Christians need to live up to the legacy of saints who've gone before us, the saints who wrote the books of the New Testament and who received, who were the original recipients of the books of the New Testament. We need to live up to the legacy of saints down through the centuries since who have confronted bad behavior, bad attitudes, bad doctrine, because the consequences, just because they're on the other side of the planet, are no less our responsibility to address if people are going to the other side of the planet and acting in our name, and we're supporting them, and we're funding them. Arguably, the most disturbing possibility right now for where the United States of America is at, increasingly hostile to public expressions of Christian faith, certainly conservative Christian faith, but that is to say, orthodox, (laughs) Christian belief, Christian life and thought, as that increasingly translates into those who act in the name of our nation, in our interests supposedly abroad, if they are corrupt, if they take bribes, if they foment wars, if they perpetuate atrocities and reports come back, and there isn't a Christian conscience to say this is wrong and stop that, and that's evil, and that must be policed, that must be made to stop if you won't stop it when we call you to repentance. If we lose the Christian conscience with all of our power, with all of our wealth that led men like John Calvin and Martin Luther and Bartolomé de las Casas to confront bad actors in their day, to petition kings and emperors and popes to step in, if we lose the Christian conscience that led a lawyer and a monk and a friar to chronicle these things and put them in the strongest possible terms, when, not if, Americans behave very badly abroad, we will not correct it, and that will be our undoing. Because America has only ever been great if it was great when America was fundamentally decent and did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But as I said, let's hop on over to a short account of the destruction of the Indies, the Wikipedia page, and then I've got to run. A short account of the destruction of the Indies, Spanish, Berthisima, Relacion de la Destrucción de las Indias, is an account written by the Spanish Dominican friar Bartolomé de las Casas in 1542, published in 1552, about the mistreatment of and atrocities committed against indigenous peoples of the Americas in colonial times and sent to the then Prince Philip II of Spain. Bartolomé de las Casas explains in the prologue that his 50 years of experience in Spanish colonies in the Indies granted him both moral legitimacy and accountability for writing this account. In 1516, Las Casas was granted the title of Protector of the Indians by Cardinal Cisneros after he submitted a report on their population decline due to harsh labor and mistreatment by colonial officials. During the time when Las Casas served as the Protector of the Indians, several clerics from the Order of St. Jerome attempted to reform systems which used the native populace as laborers. However, Las Casas found their attempts insufficient to protect the welfare of the Indians and returned to Spain to appeal to the Spanish monarch in 1517. From 1517 to 1540, Las Casas traveled back and forth between Spain and Spanish colonies in Latin America numerous times, struggling to find a common ground between Spanish authorities and his own attempts to improve the conditions of Indian subjects in Spanish dominions. One of the purposes of his travels was to continue to protest Spanish colonial mistreatment of Indians in 1542 after Las Casas wrote 
First, the Chronicle, later known as a short account of the destruction of the Indies during the hearings ordered by Charles V of Spain to resolve issues of forceful conversion and colonial exploitation of Indians, Las Casas presented the account before the members of the Council of the Indies as proof of atrocities committed upon Indians by colonial authorities. And now I'll just stop right there and you can read the rest of this Wikipedia entry or you can listen to the book, which is quite a read. But as I said, I have to run. And so for the sake of time, I just want to bring you back again to 2 Kings chapter 16 and recognize this King Ahaz being king of Judah and making an appeal to Assyria to come and help him with Israel and with Syria. He mortgages his own personal fortune and the treasures of the temple to accomplish this. And then in Damascus, he sees this altar, a pagan altar, and he brings it back. And just like that, just like that, we should anticipate that we will find, let's say, for instance, in the legacy of Spain, either within the Iberian Peninsula or around the world, we should expect that the Reconquista and centuries of Moorish Muslim rule had an effect. And we should be very careful when this or that person says you need to be on the right side of history and moderate your Christian faith to accommodate certain pet doctrines, what is politically correct now based on who's in power, who has the ability to bless or damn you economically, socially, culturally, politically. Be very careful because that same temptation which is seizing you is common to man. And I believe, and this is my working theory, that the worst abuses perpetuated by the Spaniards in the New World, one, had more in common with the example of Islam, when Islam conquered, how Muslims related to non-Muslims with forcible conversions, torture, oppression, enslavement, hard labor, hard bondage. More of the Muslim influence perhaps had seeped into the expression of faith and the political activities, and yes, even the economic and military decisions of the Spanish by the time they drove the Moors out and reconquered Spain, then is often admitted. For another thing, it should be at least considered that the Spaniards coming to the New World and being shocked and horrified by things they observed the Aztecs, for instance, doing, at a certain point, many of them rationalized it sufficient to maintain some kind of a psychological equilibrium. And as they justified it, as they, in some cases, looked the other way or downplayed it, gradually, increasingly, they came to believe that it was okay for them to treat indigenous Americans the same way that they saw indigenous Americans treating one another, the same way that they saw sometimes indigenous Americans treating they themselves, or looking like they wanted to treat they themselves. But what's more sure than any of those possibilities, any of those theories that I'm still trying to explore as I continue reading history and this biography of Charles V, for instance, what's more sure than any of my little theories that I'm trying to search out is that man descended from Adam as a sinful nature and does what is evil in the sight of the Lord when he 
forgets God, when he thinks that he can innovate. It starts out with little innovations here and there. I'm just going to rearrange the furniture in the temple like I think is good. Yeah, this altar that God set for us to build and to put here, I'm going to put it over there. I like this altar better that I saw one like, just like it in Damascus. And it's when the priests enthusiastically just go along with whatever the king wants to innovate. It's when the priests do that, that the whole kingdom gets into a great deal of trouble. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, I'll I'll help you. Here, I'll grab the other side. What the priest should have been telling the king, what he should have said was, "This this is a dangerous thing you're doing. Have you no fear of God who sees this right now? Leave this altar where it is. And no, we're not going to set up a pagan altar that you thought was really shiny in Damascus. We're not going to set up a pagan altar in the temple because you think it's better. It's preferable to the one God told us to make. Not all that glitters is gold. But as I said, that's all the time I've got for this episode. I said I needed to run and I do. Do check out these three books. I would give high marks to Conquistadores, not five stars out of five, but four stars out of five. Actually, nine years among the Indians, just by the nature of it, I give five out of five stars to because I've never read anything quite like it. And it's pretty eye-opening. If you have a romanticized idea of what the indigenous peoples were like, say, in the 19th century, this will cure you. But on the flip side, if you have a rather too rosy view of how Europeans have acted and conducted themselves in the new world since the late 15th century, mid 16th century, Bartolome de las Casas, a brief account of the destruction of the Indies, will persuade you of something a little more real, a little more accurate. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.